Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Captain George Smith Anthony and the remarkable 1876 rescue by Captain Anthony and the crew of the SS Catalpa of six Irish prisoners condemned to life in exile by British authorities in Western Australia. Now let's begin our story of Captain George Anthony and the 1876 voyage of the SS Catalpa. Throughout the 19th century, the British government dealt harshly with any member of Irish society apprehended while attempting to further the cause of Irish independence. Especially problematic were the large group of Irish nationals who were members of the British military. Most of these individuals enlisted for economic reasons, but many still maintained a fervent desire for Irish independence obtained through armed rebellion. This movement was known as Fenianism and its adherents as Fenians. In 1865, 30% of the British occupying force in Ireland was actually Irish, and many of these soldiers were sympathetic to the Fenian cause. Unfortunately, these ranks were riddled with informers, and any armed insurrection was typically nipped in the bud. Ringleaders swiftly rounded up before a shot could be fired. In early 1866, the British, tipped off that a coordinated national uprising was imminent, successfully apprehended hundreds of both civilian and military Fenians. Seven of the Fenians who were members of the British military were convicted of treason and sentenced to hang. British behavior in Ireland was already becoming controversial in Europe, and especially in the U.S., where a large Irish immigrant population vocally criticized such barbaric sentences. The British government was also divided over such executions, concerned with image and potential damage to the maritime trade that was the lifeblood of the empire. In Ireland, imprisoned Fenians were considered heroes, and any executions would convey them to the status of martyrdom. A compromise of sorts was worked out. Most of the recently arrested Fenians would be sent to penal servitude in Australia, including those currently under a death sentence. Thousands of miles from Britain and out of the public eye, many of these convicts would ultimately die anyway, a convenient solution to a thorny problem. The seven condemned military Fenians, John O'Reilly, Robert Cranston, Michael Harrington, Thomas Dara, Martin Hogan, James Wilson, and Thomas Hassett spent a year languishing in British prisons before boarding a prison ship. They were among 63 Fenians, the last group of political prisoners ever transported to Australia. For them, that would be of little consolation during the next few years. In January of 1868, after three months at sea, their prison ship reached Western Australia. On the 10th, it dropped anchor in Fremantle, and the prisoners were transported to the jetty at Victoria Quay. From there, they marched through the town 
to the Fremantle goal, a forbidding stone edifice with a practically medieval appearance. Nicknamed the Establishment, this prison confined over 3,000 human beings, 15% of the western region's 20,000 inhabitants. Escape was considered impossible. If a convict even made it outside of the walls of Fremantle Goal, he would have to circumvent thousands of miles of shark-infested ocean or an equally lengthy trek through the desert-like conditions of the Australian bush country. He would probably die of thirst before Aboriginal trackers found him and dragged him back to be hanged in the prison yard. The military members of the Fenian group were placed in one-man cells that were three feet wide, seven feet long, and nine feet high. Here they were doomed to service on a work gang, eventual death, and burial in an unmarked grave along some Australian road. One of the military Fenians, John O'Reilly, was fortunate enough to secure a position as a messenger and clerk that allowed him to travel freely between the road gang camps and Fremantle. O'Reilly, a former cavalryman and more intelligent than the typical criminal convict, seemed ideal to handle such a privileged position. Even if he did stray from his job and attempted to escape, prison authorities reasoned that he wouldn't get very far. But O'Reilly knew that unlike the civilian Fenians, he was unlikely to ever receive a pardon. He took a chance and confided with a Catholic priest about his determination to escape. It would take two years, the cooperation of other local Fenian sympathizers, including the priest and an elaborate two-week process. But in 1869, O'Reilly was successful. Captain David Gifford of an American whaling bark, the Gazelle, agreed to pick up O'Reilly if the prisoner could make it to international waters. Several locals of Irish descent helped row a longboat to the agreed rendezvous off the coast, and Gifford kept his word. O'Reilly settled in Boston, Massachusetts, and began a new career as a journalist and writer. Back at Fremantle and the establishment, things were changing as well. The new British government under William Gladstone determined that pardoning Fenian inmates would reduce the ongoing tension in Ireland. For several years, beginning in 1869, groups of civilian Fenian political prisoners were released on the condition that they could not return to any part of Britain or Ireland. Some chose to stay in Australia. Others emigrated to the United States. A group of five released Fenians, including prominent rebel leader John Devoy, sailed to New York aboard the SS Cuba and were hailed in the city as the Cuba Five. Devoy quickly became involved in uniting the disparate elements of the Irish political community. By 1871, the only remaining Fenian prisoners in Fremantle Goal were the former members of the British military. Unfortunately, these men were considered traitors and would never be released. Letters smuggled out of the establishment and received by Devoy made it clear that they were slowly succumbing to disease and backbreaking labor. Devoy repeatedly approached the Clan na Gael, which means family of the Gales in Gaelic, an Irish immigrant organization, in an attempt to organize a rescue attempt, but was repeatedly rebuffed throughout 1871 and 1872. In 1874, Devoy received another letter from Fenian prisoner James Wilson that he chose to read aloud at a national meeting of the Clan na Gael. Part of it read, Think that we have been nine years in this living tomb since our first arrest, and it is impossible for mind and body 
to withstand the continual strain that is upon them. One or the other must give way. We think that if you forsake us, then we are friendless indeed. This missive, the letter from the tomb, compelled the clan to understand that to rescue the military Fenians was their moral imperative. Devoy was officially urged to devise a plan of escape, and he immediately proceeded to Boston, and a meeting with John O'Reilly, the only man ever to successfully escape from an Australian penal colony. O'Reilly was still in touch with members of the New Bedford, Massachusetts whaling community, including some of the former members of the crew of the Gazelle. This close-knit group quickly sold Devoy on the idea that any rescue attempt should also try to fund itself by engaging in a legitimate whaling expedition. They also agreed that there was only one man for the job, Captain George Smith Anthony. Captain Anthony was a 31-year-old sea captain and native of New Bedford. He was also the recently married son-in-law of John T. Richardson, one of the most prosperous shipping agents and maritime merchants in the town's thriving whaling industry. As a condition of his marriage, he had agreed to give up the dangerous life of commanding a merchant ship, working instead as a senior engineer at a local drill manufacturer. But Devoy, through Richardson, secretly recruited Anthony for the mission. He could potentially be paid three times the normal percentage for a whaling captain, plus a handsome bonus, ten times what he could annually make at the drill factory. Anthony was not Irish, but he was a Quaker, and Devoy's description of the harsh Fremantle conditions and brutal treatment of the prisoners, which he had personally experienced, must have influenced Anthony to commit to a very demanding voyage. Money alone could not have been a sufficient inducement for Anthony to sign on. He would be away from his young family for at least a year and would have to risk both the danger of a lengthy sea voyage and potential capture by the British Navy, the world's most powerful. But for a tough, adventurous Yankee sea captain, it seemed like the challenge of a lifetime. Recruiting Anthony was merely a start. Devoy, O'Reilly, and Richardson began to scour New England for a suitable ship. Although the Clan Nagale had secretly raised some money from a national base of contributors, they were still short of the purchase price of an appropriate vessel. It took Richardson fronting thousands of dollars and another Clan Nagale member, James Reynolds, mortgaging his home to provide the funding for the purchase of the Catulpa, a 90-foot merchant ship that had recently returned from the West Indies. In March of 1875, the ship was towed to New Bedford, where Captain Anthony could personally supervise its repairs and reworking as a whaler. By the end of April, a 22-man crew had been selected, with only one man, Dennis Duggan, aware of the true mission of the Catalpa. Duggan, Irish, was also a carpenter by trade, so he would not arouse the suspicions of customs officials about any atypical crew aboard a whaler. On April 30, 1875, Captain George Anthony raised anchor in New Bedford and began the first leg of the mission to rescue the six Irish rebels.
Meanwhile, Devoy began the second phase of the plot. It would take more than a cooperative ship to get the prisoners out of Australia. The Catalpa's appearance would have to coincide with a land-based operation to get the Fenians properly situated. To that end, Devoy designated John Breslin, an Irish immigrant New Yorker, well-known in Republican circles for assisting in at least one successful Fenian Dublin prison escape. Very few conspirators even knew that Breslin was living in New York, so he was ideally suited for the mission. Sporting a flowing beard, Breslin no longer resembled the clean-shaven man who had successfully sprung Irish prisoners a decade earlier. His orders were to make his way to California, meet with Clan Nigale members there, and then head to Western Australia. Posing as a wealthy American businessman named James Collins, Breslin would be allegedly trying to set up mining deals and speculative ventures in the region. To help with the ruse, Breslin carried two letters of introduction, one signed by a judge verifying that, quote, Collins, unquote, owned huge tracts of land and mining interests, the other verifying that he had over $100,000 to invest. Breslin, figuring that he might need another person to help, was accompanied by Tom Desmond, a Sacramento native and Clan Nigale member. From San Francisco, the two set sail in September of 1875 for Sydney. They were not to acknowledge each other and sailed in different sections of the ship. Captain Anthony Summer had not been uneventful. The whaling was mediocre, and by October, the Catalpa landed in the Canary Islands with approximately $12,000 of cargo. One crew member had died at sea, and another half-dozen either deserted or too ill to continue. By the time the Catalpa reached Tenerife, Anthony would have to tell his first mate, Samuel Smith, of the true destination of the voyage, and if Smith objected, Anthony would not be able to continue. Convincing the crew would be hard enough, but without a willing first mate, the mission couldn't possibly succeed or even move forward. Luckily, Smith, a Scot with no love for the British and a tough sailor who had already suffered a concussion while successfully capturing a whale, agreed enthusiastically. He could have left the ship at Tenerife with no questions asked. Instead, he began to plan with Anthony on how to continue the mission. By November, John Breslin, a.k.a. James Collins, was successfully installed in Fremantle, and word had spread that a wealthy American had hit the territory looking to spend money and make deals. Desmond got a job in Perth, 12 miles away, close enough to be available when necessary. Breslin's impeccable dress and cultured manner helped pull off the masquerade. Secretly, he also made contact with the local priest, Father Patrick McCabe, who would successfully help John O'Reilly escape in 1869. McCabe helped smuggle a note from Breslin to one of the Fenian prisoners, James Wilson. It contained a simple greeting and the words, The door of the tomb is ajar. Breslin's impersonation was so good that through the owner of his hotel, he was able to befriend the warden of Fremantle Goal and even receive a tour of the establishment, a visit that confirmed that any armed extraction of the prisoners would be impossible. Currently, only one of the six men spent any significant time outside of the walls of the prison, an obstacle that had to be circumvented if a successful escape was to be undertaken. The Catalpa was scheduled to arrive off of the Australian coast in late January 1876. Anthony concocted a story about sailing to whaling grounds off of New Zealand that were rumored to be quite profitable. For the moment, that kept the crew in tow. In Fremantle, Breslin checked the telegraph office for daily arrivals of new ships in the area's ports, but February came and went without any news of the Catalpa. He began to wonder if the ship was stuck in some distant port, or worse. 
Unbeknownst to any of the conspirators was the news that a second plot had been concocted in Dublin by another Irish Republican group, which was completely infiltrated by British police. It wasn't long before this intelligence was forwarded to colonial officials in Western Australia. Luckily, Breslin had arrived well before news of this conspiracy emerged, but it would certainly put the entire official hierarchy on edge. They cagily perused any subsequent newcomers to the region, unaware that a plot requiring only the arrival of the Catalpa was already fully underway. George Anthony was delayed by nothing more than the unpredictability of sailing in the 19th century. From the tip of Africa to the shores of Australia was approximately 4,700 miles, quite a distance for a 90-foot wind-driven ship. Plagued by gales and weather unsuited to covering large distances, Captain Anthony remained patient and hoped to reach his destination as quickly as possible. As February turned into March and March started slipping away, not Breslin, Devoy, or any other member of Clan Nigale had a clue as to where the Catalpa was or if it was even still afloat. Finally, on March 28, 1876, the Catalpa arrived in Bunbury, a port town in the vicinity of Fremantle. Scanning the new arrivals list in the Fremantle Telegraph Office, Breslin put in motion a prearranged plan to make contact with Captain Anthony. Because there were few Americans in the vicinity, when Anthony came ashore at Bunbury, several merchants suggested he make the acquaintance of a fellow American staying in the region, a Mr. Collins. That made their social interaction seem coincidental and did nothing to raise suspicion. Breslin outlined the plan to Anthony after a leisurely dinner in Bunbury. He had selected a deserted stretch of beach near the town of Rockingham, a secluded spot surrounded by trees. All Anthony had to do was get a whaleboat capable of carrying the convicts and several other conspirators to the designated location, and Breslin would take care of the rest. The following day, Breslin was able to get Anthony aboard the Georgette, the Royal Navy passenger steamer that sailed between the towns and the region. Breslin introduced Anthony to the captain of the Georgette, and as the craft made its way to Fremantle, the Yankee skipper gathered valuable intelligence about the coastline, all under the guise of shop talk. On April 2nd, when the Georgette docked at Fremantle, a discouraging sight greeted both Anthony and Breslin. The HMS Conflict, a full-fledged British naval warship, was also anchored at Fremantle. Although it would quickly be determined that the conflict's appearance was merely an annual visit and nothing suspicious, the escape would have to wait until the ship left. Anthony wanted no part of trying to outrun a swift, fully-armed British gunboat. Nevertheless, this unforeseen obstacle posed difficulties for both men. Four of Anthony's crew had already tried to desert the ship, and most of the rest were quite unenthusiastic about continuing on until New Zealand. It would take quite an effort from First Mate Smith and the armed Duggan to keep things calm in Anthony's absence. Breslin had smuggled a message in through Father McCabe that deliverance was at hand, but a rumor was sweeping the prison that the military Fenians were soon to be reassigned to different work gangs to prevent any rescue attempts. Breslin and Anthony made preparations for an escape to proceed within a few hours of the conflict leaving Fremantle. They visited the spot near Rockingham where Anthony was to come ashore. Desmond hired several horse-drawn carriages that would transport the convicts from Fremantle to the beach, and Breslin got word to his main convict contact, James Wilson, to be ready to leave in a matter of days. Wilson worked as a mail courier and had the greatest mobility of the prisoners. The initial date of the escape was to be April 6th, but the presence of the conflict ruined that option. 
Anthony returned to his ship in Bunbury, where he could only wait for a coded telegram from Breslin telling him that the warship had left for Adelaide. It took five long days, but on the 11th, Breslin discovered that the warship was gone, and he wired Anthony immediately. Bad weather then pushed the escape back several more days until April 17th, the Monday after Easter. The date turned out to be accidentally fortuitous, as much of official Fremantle would be at Perth attending a regatta. Breslin would also be able to attend Mass on Easter Sunday at the same Catholic church frequented by the prisoners. There he would send them a visual sign that the mission was on as planned. The final piece of the puzzle fell together as two local Fenian sympathizers agreed to cut the telegraph wires north and south of Fremantle to hinder communication during the attempt, and two others, Tom Brennan and John King, would ride ahead of Breslin and run interference along the Rockingham Road. Any foreign vessel leaving Western Australia needed permission from customs officials before leaving port. The Catalpa was fully searched by police before pulling up anchor, the result of O'Reilly's daring escape almost a decade earlier. By the morning of April 16th, Easter Sunday, Anthony was in position, 12 miles off of the Australian coast. At 1 p.m., he ordered his five most reliable sailors into the whaleboat, had the 30-foot craft lowered into the water, and headed in the direction of the beach at Rockingham. He told Samuel Smith that if he didn't return, Smith could keep whaling or return home, whatever he thought was best. As the boat pulled further away from the Catalpa, Anthony could see the stars and stripes flapping in the breeze. More than 10 miles out, under a foreign flag, the British would not be able to stop him, but if they caught him on the beach or en route back to the ship, he would be returning with the Fenians to the establishment. On his trip to Rockingham with Breslin, Anthony had stuck a large driftwood stake into the sand near the rendezvous spot. He hoped it would be visible as the whaleboat got close to the shore. Two miles from land, the boat hit an uncharted reef and almost foundered. But by nightfall, Anthony and his sailors were on the beach, hidden in the grass and trees beyond the sand of the waterline. At dawn on Monday, April 17th, they awoke from a fitful sleep. In Fremantle, John Breslin was also up early. He paid the bill at his hotel, said he was off to the Perth regatta, and met Tom Desmond at a nearby stable where two horse-drawn carriages were waiting. They took the carriages out to the Rockingham Road and hoped that all six convicts had been able to successfully implement their own plan. James Wilson was assigned to the prison chaplain's stable and could merely walk away from his location. Thomas Hassett and Robert Cranston were assigned to the prison storehouse, but were able to bluff their way out of the main gate by claiming that they were ordered to help dig potatoes out of a prison garden beyond the walls. Hassett went to meet up with Thomas Hara, who actually was in the potato field. Cranston headed directly to the Fremantle jetty. He told the warder there that Michael Harrington was needed at the governor's house to help move furniture. They met up with Wilson and headed back toward the potato field and then to the Rockingham Road. Spotted by Dara and Hassett, the two men went to pick up Martin Hogan, who was by himself on a house painting detail, and the three then walked briskly behind Wilson's group. It was early on Easter Monday. Any guard or warder would still be groggily dealing with the new work week, and any real authority was down the road at Perth. Besides, where could any prisoner really escape to, anyway? Wilson's group met up with Breslin and Desmond and quickly got into the first carriage, changing into civilian clothes as Desmond bolted in the direction of Rockingham. The next three prisoners were running right behind and were quickly headed in the same direction, with Breslin wheeling toward Rockingham. Among the clothes that Breslin provided were pistols and rifles, as it would either be escape or a fight to the death. The telegraph lines from Fremantle were already cut. 
Hopefully no one would stop them during the two-hour, 20-mile ride to Anthony's waiting whaleboat. At Rockingham, Anthony hoped everything was proceeding according to plan when he became aware of some workmen loading timber on a jetty less than a half a mile away. Initially shocked that he and Breslin hadn't noticed this outpost of civilization, Anthony also realized that the men were anticipating the arrival of a ship that would pick up the timber. As the supervisor of this group headed in the captain's direction, he tried to stay calm but kept one hand on the revolver in his own pocket. Anthony attempted to convince the foreman that they were off a whaling ship and headed to Fremantle to replace an anchor lost in a storm. A former convict, the man practically laughed, presuming the group to be deserters. Perhaps sympathetic, he warned them that their location wasn't a good one if they were trying to hide. The Georgette would be along to pick up the timber in a few hours. Anthony tried to remain nonchalant as he picked up the faint trail of steam engine smoke on the otherwise clear horizon. It was the Georgette, and it was headed in his direction. The first members of Breslin's group to reach Captain Anthony were Thomas Brennan in a small carriage of his own and John King on horseback. A few minutes ahead of the main group, they had encountered no problems. King spotted Anthony and yelled that Breslin and the convicts were only minutes away. George Anthony told him of the Georgette, and King immediately turned around to inform Breslin that there was no time to lose. Luckily, the Georgette didn't seem to be getting any closer. It was still hours away. It wasn't long before Captain Anthony and his crew could hear the sound of horses' hooves and the shouts of Breslin, King, and the prisoners. The carriages pulled up, and a wild scene ensued as the six Fenians, the four conspirators, and Captain Anthony and his crew all got the boat down to the waterline as quickly as possible. Sixteen men and more than a few guns were now crammed into a whaleboat designed to hold ten sailors at most. The crew pulled on their oars, at first making virtually no headway against the oncoming waves. Finally, their determination got them away from the vicinity of the beach. Back on shore, the jetty foreman had wandered over to check on all of the commotion and now stood alone, clearly puzzled by the abandoned buggies and the strange, overcrowded boat making its way into the ocean. When the whaleboat reached approximately a half mile from the shore, the beach suddenly began to fill with guards and uniformed men on horseback, the territorial mounted police. Whether they were alerted by the foreman or the absence of the prisoners had prompted a pursuit, the entire group of conspirators had eluded capture by only a matter of minutes. Some of the soldiers waded into the water, but they were clearly too late. At 11.30 in the morning, with the whaleboat now two miles from the beach, the locals on the shore realized that they were wasting their time and disappeared. Breslin and the prisoners figured that the worst was over and their escape would be successful. George Anthony knew that they still had two major obstacles, the Georgette, which would eventually get word and come looking for them, and the weather, which was worsening by the minute. From the moment he had stepped into the longboat, the captain could tell from the thickening clouds and quickening breeze that bad weather was on the way. Now, past the reefs and headed in the general direction of the Catalpa, the waves began to swell with increasing intensity. The crew put up the tiny sail that helped propel the small boat even faster, but by four o'clock there was still no sign of the Catalpa anywhere on the horizon.
in Fremantle, prison and law enforcement officials responded chaotically to the escape attempt. The alarm went out at about 10 o'clock a.m., hindered by the severed telegraph wires that weren't repaired until late morning. The Georgette was sent back to Fremantle, where she was packed with heavily armed police and prison guards, but it was 4 o'clock before the ship was ready to give chase. In the meantime, a much faster but smaller police cutter would search the water off Rockingham for any sign of the whaleboat or the Catalpa. Their orders had been made clear by the telegram received from the governor of the territory, William Cleaver Robinson. Quote, Detained by force if necessary, American whaling bark Catalpa, George Anthony Master. Arrest said Anthony, his officers and crew, and any passengers who may be aboard, unquote. Further delayed by the bad weather, the Georgette did not leave the jetty at Fremantle until 9 p.m. Despite the worsening conditions, British officials would do everything in their power to halt the escape. The same storm that lashed the dock at Fremantle now threatened the very existence of Anthony's whaleboat. Tall waves threatened to swamp and capsize the boat, every man not on an oar bailing water to keep the ship afloat. As the skies grew dark, one of the sailors spotted the Catalpa, a small speck approximately four miles away. A heavy downpour began, waterlogging the interior of the craft further, but Anthony figured he could catch his ship in about an hour's time. Unfortunately, the weather intensified into a full-blown gale. The small mast of the sail cracked from the wind and needed to be rigged together with an oar. The men did everything they could do to stay upright. Pursuit of the Catalpa was suspended as they fought for their very lives. Although George Anthony kept reassuring his passengers that he had seen worse, in truth he thought that the boat would capsize and sink at any moment. In the darkness, the crew of the Catalpa would never spot them. Rescue wasn't even a possibility until daybreak. The whaleboat and its inhabitants would have to survive the night on the open sea in a full-blown storm. It didn't seem possible. Even worse, Sam Smith was taking the Catalpa further away from shore to avoid any possibility of the storm pushing him onto the reefs. It was a wise nautical move, but Anthony could see the lanterns of his ship getting fainter until they disappeared entirely. Undoubtedly, Smith would come looking for them in the morning, but by then, who knew where they would be? The crew was handling the situation minute by minute, trying to survive one wave at a time. For six hours, Anthony would use every bit of experience and seamanship he could muster to maintain his course through the storm. The prisoners and conspirators were mostly useless, either seasick or too paralyzed by fear to render much assistance. Anthony's sailors used their oars to guide the ship on what they hoped would be the proper course. By three in the morning, Anthony discerned that the storm was lightening up, and by dawn it was still pouring, but it was clear that they would make it through until morning. At approximately 7 a.m., they spotted the Catalpa, miles away, but within reach. Unfortunately, Anthony spotted something else on the horizon, a telltale trail of smoke just above the waterline. It was the Georgette, and it was heading in their general direction. Clearly, it had spotted the Catalpa as well. Sam Smith, having observed the Georgette, but still unable to see the whaleboat, tacked away from Anthony. As fast as the captain's men could row, they would never beat the Georgette to the Catalpa. The captain lowered his sail, told everyone to lay low, and watched just over the rim of the whaleboat as the Georgette steamed within a half mile, intent on the Catalpa. Luckily, no one on the British ship presumed that the whaleboat could have been on the water all night and were most likely focusing their attention toward the shore. They would never think to look in Anthony's direction. Instead, they presumed that the prisoners had returned to land, hidden during the night, and were now somewhere en route from the beach. 
The Georgette pulled alongside the Catalpa, and Superintendent of the Water Police John Stone confronted Sam Smith. Where was the Catalpa's captain, and where was the ship's whaleboat clearly missing from the deck? Smith claimed that the captain had set out for Fremantle to replace an anchor lost in the storm. The superintendent threatened to board the Catalpa, but Smith made it clear he would forcibly resist, realizing that most likely the prisoners could not be on board, and running short of coal after spending the night on the open water, the Georgette suddenly turned and headed back towards Fremantle to reload. With the prevailing onshore winds, the Catalpa wasn't going anywhere quickly anyway. The Georgette passed the police cutter on the way back and encouraged its occupants to keep an eye on the Catalpa until it could return. That gave Anthony the opportunity he was waiting for. He gambled that he could make it to the Catalpa before the cutter spotted him and cut off the whaleboat. The police vessel was also heading toward Anthony's ship, but they hadn't noticed him yet. He hoisted his small sail and ordered his men to row as rapidly as possible. Both boats were heading towards the Catalpa from opposite directions. For good measure, one of the prisoners began waving a signal flag from the front of the whaleboat. Sam Smith pointed the Catalpa in their direction. The police cutter hoisted all of its sails for maximum speed and rapidly closed the distance. The prisoners and Breslin's men clutched their rifles and pistols, again determined not to be taken alive. The whaleboat, helped by the Catalpa's movement, won the race. The prisoners and the rest ascended the lines, the boat was lifted out of the water and secured in place, and Captain George Anthony was back on the deck of the Catalpa. It was three o'clock in the afternoon on April 18, 1876, almost a year since the Catalpa had left New Bedford. The cutter hesitated for a moment and then headed away from the Catalpa. Even if they had the authority to board a foreign ship in international waters, which they didn't, the 30 policemen on the British ship knew that they would have a great deal of difficulty subduing a clearly armed contingent that would resist with equal numbers. That night, the entire crew celebrated, and the prisoners ate their first meal as free men in a decade. Anthony collapsed from exhaustion in his cabin and fell asleep. He would begin the process of sailing home in the morning. That process began a lot sooner than Anthony expected. At daybreak, he was awakened with the news that the Georgette was bearing down on them, armed to the teeth with soldiers and sporting a 12-pound cannon on its top deck. Anthony ordered all sails set, had the American flag raised to its most visible, reminded his crew that if captured, they would all surely be tossed into prison, and ordered the six Irish prisoners down below and out of view. Resland and the others remained on deck, visibly armed, the crew also readied a harpoon gun to further dissuade any attempt at boarding. The Georgette closed to only a few hundred feet, its captain running up a signal flag to the Catalpa to stop and take up its sails. Anthony ignored the message, a westerly breeze now taking him further away from the coast. An order was shouted by the same superintendent of police Stone who had confronted Sam Smith the day before. The cannon boomed a warning round just in front of the Catalpa's bow, an unmistakable threat. The superintendent yelled that Anthony should heave to, that the Catalpa carried prisoners, and that the British intended to board Anthony's ship. Anthony refused, yelling back through his speaking trumpet that the superintendent was mistaken. Stone became indignant. I'll give you 15 minutes in which to heave to. If you do not, I shall blow the masts out of you and sink you. The British crew had already reloaded and stood ready to fire. Anthony wondered what to do, his crew waiting for his next move, the men below tensely gripping their weapons. Anthony shouted back, This ship is sailing under the American flag, and she is on the high seas. If you fire on me, you are firing on the American flag. Stone persisted. 
You have escaped convicts on board. Your flag won't protect you in that. Anthony didn't budge. Yes, it will, in international waters. I intend to board your ship, sir. Anthony made it clear that it would take an international incident to get the prisoners off of the Catalpa. I don't care what you do. Stone responded, Then your government will be communicated with after you take the consequences. You have 15 minutes. Time passed slowly as everyone waited for the next round. It appeared to the British that the confrontation had ended when the Catalpa suddenly headed back toward shore and slowed to a crawl. The Georgettes slowed down as well, but Anthony was merely maneuvering to take full advantage of the prevailing wind. The Catalpa suddenly shot forward towards the open sea. The Georgette continued the chase, steaming behind the American merchant ship. But now the strong wind helped the Catalpa pull away. The Georgette could not keep up. George Anthony watched through his spyglass as the British ship slowed and then stopped completely. The Catalpa still had to sail 10,000 miles to the United States, avoiding British warships in the process. Members of the Clan Nigale in the U.S. received word of the successful mission, but said nothing, not wanting to jeopardize the return voyage. It was June before details of the escape were made public by the British press. Across America, the voyage of the Catalpa made national news. Still, it would not be until August 19, 1876, that the Catalpa reached the city of New York. The entire Irish community turned out to honor the six prisoners and their daring escape. The British government could do little other than file a diplomatic protest. When he sailed the Catalpa back to New Bedford on August 24th, Captain George Anthony, almost 40 pounds lighter, was greeted by hundreds of townspeople and given a hero's welcome. He would be paid approximately $2,100, a $1,000 bonus, and a third of the sale price of the Catalpa when it was sold following the mission. That was much less than a profitable whaling voyage would have typically generated, but Anthony never complained. When the Catalpa was sold, it wound up in Belize, where it was eventually broken up and burned. The Catalpa rescue electrified the Irish-American emigrant community. Clan Nigail became a fundraising powerhouse deemed responsible for the miraculous mission in Western Australia. John Devoy, John Breslin, and John O'Reilly would all continue as central figures in the Irish Republican cause, refocusing their attention on the struggle within Ireland itself. The six prisoners went on to live relatively quiet lives, some never recovering from the harsh physical treatment they received, and others living well into the 20th century. George Anthony would never sail again, a wanted man who risked arrest anywhere on the high seas. Forever respected in his hometown of New Bedford, he eventually became a customs inspector. The voyage of the Catalpa remained the highlight of his life, and he passed away on May 22, 1913. He is buried in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book The Voyage of the Catalpa by Peter F. Stevens and Smithsonian Magazine's March 12, 2013 article, The Most Audacious Australian Prison Break of 1876. The PBS Secrets of the Dead program also profiled the escape of the Fremantle Six on a program entitled Irish Escape. For information on how to access this material and for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com.